Hey folks, this is Ian Foster, and this is If and When, a podcast where I talk to other creators about how and why they do their thing. To start, I'm talking to colleagues, friends, and veterans of the arts community at home here in Newfoundland and Labrador, Canada. These are not so much traditional interviews as they're a chat over coffee well, or something a little stronger. Thursday. Thanks for tuning in again. So come sit in and have a listen podcast. What's going on? Well, for me, it's summertime and there are shows coming up. Nancy and I hit the road in August for a bunch of dates around Newfoundland. It's one of the first summers in a little while that we've just been home, which is kind of nice because it's Newfoundland in the summer and these are the approximately two months of the year that it is generally just awesome weather-wise to be here. So it's cool to not only be home, but to be touring around some places across the island where it's just the most lovely time of year to get to see them. So we're at the gathering this summer, um, Sean Majumder's Festival on the West Coast. Cannot wait to be there. Uh, we're at the Cultural Craft Festival in Port Union in the Bonavista Bay Area. A bunch of other great shows that are all up on the website um, that you could check out and grab tickets now for almost all of them sell tickets in advance. There are a couple of shows that are only tickets at the door, but most are in advance. So would love for you to go on there and grab your tickets now and get to see you uh, in the sunshine of Newfoundland this summer. What a dream, eh? <laughs> so what else is happening? Um, it's been out for a little while now, but if you haven't checked it out, you should check out the two songs by my friend Melanie O'Brien, Stubborn Heart and When I Loved You. We recorded both of those back in the late winter, early spring, and they came out at the end of June. And I really like these two songs. I really like what we got to do with them production-wise. When Mel came to me to talk to me about how we would, would sculpt these, she played me a lot of music that was pretty different than what's on her debut album uh, that I produced and I was so into it. I've, I've been more and more into these sort of electronic, ambient, kind of leaning towards pop, but not traditional pop sounds. I, I, I love all that stuff. So it was really fun to, to work on these songs. And we, we built these songs up from uh, acoustic guitar and voice to what you hear when you hit play. It's pretty different, but we're pretty proud of it. So, so look those up there on all the streaming services. You can, uh, can check them out under Melanie O'Brien. My guest today is Pamela Morgan, somebody who probably needs no real introduction for a lot of you. She was in the band Figgy Duff, which was a seminal band in Newfoundland's history. And they were one of those bands that confronted that Newfie stereotype and tried to both preserve the culture of Newfoundland music and that identity while railing against misinterpretations of it. Obviously something that I hold close to my heart as a theme that I think about and in, in that runs through my own work. So we had some common ground there. I've shared a songwriter circle or two with Pam over the years. We've had brief chats and I've just always wanted to sit down and pick her brain some more. And this conversation um, is, is, is definitely that. Pam is a very real and honest person. As you'll hear, there's a bunch of things she says throughout our conversation that honestly have stuck with me in the months between when we had it, because as I've been telling you, I've been banking some of these. So we recorded this conversation back in the winter. But I thought about some of the parts of this conversation between then and now. 
just because there's certain things that she's said that that ring true and can be really hard to hear and hard to talk about for artists. And one of those things that we get into over the course of these two parts is just what being an artist who is representing themselves does to your psyche. You'll hear Pam talk about how now she can't even really bear to deal with bookings or even grant applications just because there's stuff tied up in it. And I kind of pushed her on it a little bit to see what that would be for her. And, well, you'll hear anyway what she she says. But it's something that, that I've talked about with so many artist friends of mine. Just what do you do as an independent artist when you are the brand you're pushing? And I'm sure there's many of you listening right now that even hate the idea of that word, right? The idea of brand. I'm not a brand. I'm my songs. I'm, you know, my words. I'm my outlook. I'm an artist, not a brand. And that's totally true. But what happens when you're the one who has to represent yourself? If you think about the music industry in the traditional sense, there was a label, there was a room full of people sitting at computers uh, who spent nine to five hours, Monday to Friday, and probably some more, doing that for you you know they were creating the brand of whatever you did and you got to be an artist well now look around maybe you're one of those artists who is sitting at their laptop right now answering some emails or trying to get some feedback on a tour poster that you're making and you are that person you're you're repping yourself and in some ways it's liberating um the the big pie of whatever money is coming in is probably more going to the artist because all those other people aren't taking their share of it because you're independent, you're making that money, you're making the business choices, you are in control, that's great. But you're also shouldering that burden of all that other stuff that, frankly, a lot of us have just called gross over the years, you know? Um, It's gross to have to negotiate money or talk about how... Uh, ticket sales are going or how to properly market yourself in a new place. It, it feels gross to the artist who, who is in it like we all are to play. But tree falls in the forest. How else do we get to play if some of those things aren't present? And maybe you get to play, but you don't get to play the kind of shows you want because the shows you want, those bigger venues, those harder-to-access festivals they need to see that you are at a certain level as an artist. And it involves all of those little components. So the problem is, is that even if you're doing that well, you aren't shielded from any of the feedback that comes in, which will still feature tons of rejection uh, because that's the nature of the business. It's extremely competitive and everyone is trying for the same, the same things. Um, and that's like any business. Every business is competitive. Every business has its challenges and and times that, that you fail. But the difference is, is that you're also the artist. It's also you. It's, it's one thing to talk about a quote-unquote brand failing, but what do you do when that brand is who you are? I mean, it isn't. We all know there's difference between who you are and what you put out there in the world. That's just a, a truism. But at the same time, that line is super blurred when it's both an artist 
and a person who the artist is representing themselves. And I've done this for the last 15 years of my career with a few periods of representation from others and obviously help from other people and that sort of thing. But it's often been me and I know exactly what Pam is talking about when she has this discussion. I think it's one that we need to have more often and I think it's one that we need to have more honestly because I think it can really affect the art. It can, at the end of the day, mean that artists like Pamela Morgan burn out or feel like they just can't do that part of it anymore, which is obviously a huge tragedy. So how do we remedy that? What is the answer? I don't think the answer is necessarily in this conversation, but I think that we definitely talk to it directly in, you know, Pam's amazing style and ability to get right to the point. You know, it's one of the things I respect the most about her in addition to the music and, and the legacies that she has left. So I hope you're going to enjoy this conversation half as much as I enjoyed having it with, with Pamela Morgan. Here's part one right now. Well, Pamela, thanks for doing this. My pleasure. I appreciate it. Um, give us give us the basics to start. Tell us where where you're from. I'm from Grand Falls. I grew up in Grand Falls and left uh, just before I finished grade eleven. And did you come to town? Um, not 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 right away. I um, I was involved with a drama club when I was in high school and. Um, we had done this play about the Beothic, which uh, got some attention because it was a collective, which is unusual for high school. Mm. And uh, we it played in St. John's. And uh, so I was recruited by the Newfoundland Traveling Theatre. Uh, it was under Dudley Cox. So they were starting a tour in May. So I left without writing my public exams and went on the road with this bunch of uh, d- uh, depraved hippies uh, for four months. And... Uh, then uh, got home the end of September. So, yeah, right. I left I left to go on tour, basically. Right, right. I'm noticing a lot of, you know, just various musical friends, you know, that there's a ton of interaction between theater and music. I, I don't really know. I did. It's not my heritage of how I grew up, but a lot of friends did. Is that sort of how you got into things that way or? It is. I mean, um, the, the play I mentioned in high school, I com- composed and sang a song in it and um Noel Din, who was the leader of Figgy Duff, a friend of his, brought him to see the play. And that's how he knew about me. Oh. <laughs> so, uh, and, and, you know, it's funny because I'm gravitating back towards the theater now. Uh, I wrote a folk opera and I'm writing a play and, you know, various... Uh, I, I'm kind of very interested in, in that marriage again of music and theater. Wow, cool. Mm. That's cool. Tell me more about... Um where music really began for you like do you have kind of an earliest memory of playing or hearing something that stuck with you oh yeah well my mother was a piano teacher and I have three older sisters so uh, I had you know mom taught in the home so and I all our students would come through and I so all of the you know kind of beginner classics that everybody learns are you know burned upon my memory (laughs) because I heard them over and over again you know with my sisters practicing and the students practicing and then myself so you know I had I had music right from the time I was born right right what was that music 
Mostly it was classical music and uh, we would, um, you know, enter the Kiwanis Festival as a four people on one piano uh, thing, you know, with our family music. And uh, then there was the church choir and mom was the organist and all of that. So we had music all, all growing up. Yeah, it's interesting. Nancy, um, Nancy remembers sitting on the bench with her mom and her mom saying, like, I'm going to sing this melody and I want you to keep singing the thing that I just showed you, you know, and she could barely walk at that point. She was so young, but that's how she learned harmony. And, uh, you know, it's, I, I find, I understand harmony and I can do it, but she, uh, she definitely, uh, learned that from that formative age, you know, it's just in her. And it's like the black magic of her being able to just pick anything out of the ear it came from that, like from the youngest age, singing with her mom, you know? I think my sense of harmony is similar, but it came from the church choir. Right. And, I mean, I was never a soloist, but I could hold the whole alto part by myself. <laughs> you know, it's like I, I, I had a good ear and I could, could actually, you know, sing against the melody kind of thing. And I used to like doing that, actually. I loved harmony. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, touring with that group, the Depraved Hippies, how old were you? <laughs> um, at that time, I was 16. Right. Mm. Cool. I just realized Depraved Hippie needs, needs to be a band name, doesn't it? The Depraved Hippies. <laughs> like, that was the band you played with? I was, so I was in the Depraved Hippies from 16 until... <laughs> I was paraphrasing the opinion of my parents. <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course. And where did you go? Where, tell me Everywhere. About. That tour, that was a, such a great, oh my God, such a great tour because there was 17 of us in a, in a school bus and we did 69 one-night stands all around Newfoundland. What? It was the, um, the Newfoundland Traveling Theatre uh, history pageant and uh, we just went everywhere and we had an accordion player from White Bay, his name was Norman Rice and he used to, we used to put him on top of the bus when we rolled in the town to play the accordion to let everybody know we were coming and as if they didn't know already but <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it was it was just, and for me, just, I mean, barely out of high school, uh, you know, I mean, it was sex, drugs, rock and roll, everything, like right out, right out of the gate, it was fantastic, what a ball we had, wow. and really great people, you know, I mean, in lifelong friendships, I mean, Benny Malone was on that tour, and, um, you know, all kinds of people that uh, went on, well, it's a lot of them, some of them are dead now, but, uh, you know, just people who went on to do other fantastic things, and it was great. Wow, yeah. that's really cool. Uh, I mean, 69 shows, like, I can't even One-nighters, yeah. Yeah. It was amazing. Wow. How long was that? We I went mean, everywhere. Like well, three or four months? It of, was four months, as I said yeah. earlier. Like it, We left in May, beginning of May, and, and did a bit of rehearsal, and then we didn't get off the road until the end of September. Do you have any particular memories of, like, I can't believe we're in X place doing this? Well, they kind of all, you know, sort of blurred into each other, because I didn't really know Newfoundland at that time. Now, later on, I made it a point of going back to a lot of these places, looking for singers and songs and things. But at that time... It was just it was just one magical little place after the other, wow. you know. Some places people were scared of us. Some like nobody would come, and uh, and we had this um, like massive kind of um, stage made out of planks that was huge to put together. You know, there was seven crew and ten actors, and uh, what a what a time! One a cook. We had a cook on with us. <laughs> it was fun. that was Al Pittman's sister Eileen was the cook. Right. You know, so it was just. It was amazing. Uh, like, I can't believe we did that. Uh, but those are the kinds of things that happened in the 70s. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it flashed me back to uh, 
the first time I ever played on Fogel Island and I was playing in the Fogel Island church and the guy who had me coming over, I arrived and he was like, we've sold like a little over half tickets, you know, where we're like, you know, I know we got, we got more to do, but I still have some more promotion to do. And I remember thinking like, well, it's 3 p.m. and the show's <laughs> at 7. So like, how does, how does that work, you know? Yeah. And he said, no, no, don't worry, I got this. And then he's like, let me show you around town, like jump in the car. And then we were driving around and he would like see someone and he would wind down the window and be like, hey, and he'd call him over and be like, hey, this is Ian. He's playing up at the church tonight. You should come. And the guy was like, oh, yeah, yeah, cool, cool. And like that actually, he got a number more people from doing that. I'm like, there's no more grassroots promotion than no. driving around town and That's openly soliciting, you know. I remember Fogo Island from our tour, now that you mentioned it, um, uh, in those days... It was before, you know, all of the old, the, you know, those big old merchant um, warehouses and houses down by the waterfront there. Like they, they were all uh, uh, had old stock in them still. Like we were, we were all, you know, we were theater people, so we were all going, combing through it, you know, for, you know, coats from the thirties and and you know old beautiful satin slips, you know, uh, lingerie from the twenties. I mean, it was just amazing the stuff that we found there. Wow. It was incredible. They they had they they weren't, you know, a quote unquote modern modernized as much as a lot of places. Right. They still had a lot of the old feel to it, and we we just had some beautiful treasures from there. Uh, and uh, we had a wonder. I can't remember the show, but I do remember that about Fogo. Wow, mm. that's cool. I mean, it's an island off an island, you know. Mm. You can yeah. go to Little Fogo Island. It's an island off an island off an island. It's yeah, like, exactly. It's, it's a pretty incredible, yeah. incredible place, you know. Um, tell me about uh, tell me about Noel and the beginning of Figgy Duff. Well, um, they had they all had already done a couple of shows uh, before me. Anita Best was um, their first singer for one summer, but she wanted to go back and teach, and she she didn't think it was for her. And um, I was by that time working with the Mummers Troupe. I did a couple of shows with them after this tour. And um, I'm, <laughs> I remember Noel coming up to me one time. I can't remember. I think it was the Thompson Student Center, and introducing himself and said he had seen the play and all that kind of stuff. And and he said he was a a drummer and a piano player. And I said to myself, yeah, right. And uh, <laughs> so that was it. And I, I just kind of like didn't really um, uh, pay much attention. No, that that first meeting was um, uh, when when the play came to St. John's. That was right. The one that he had seen in, in Grand Falls where I sang the song. Mm -hmm. That was when he introduced himself. And I just didn't pay much attention. I just thought he was, you know, some weirdo and I didn't really pay any attention. But <laughs> then later when I came in working with the Murmurs troupe, then he did introduce himself and, and invited me down to uh, sing a few songs. Mm -hmm. But it was kind of interesting in a way because, um, you know, my uh, there was a groundswell movement there towards you know Newfoundlandia um, because my uh, drama teacher in high school we started off with three subjects we were going to tackle with this play now the Beothic play kind of took over because it was so you know so interesting and powerful but the other subjects were resettlement and um, I can't remember the third but you know he was really um, strongly um, adamant about 
Newfoundland culture and not letting it disappear and giving it its due and all that that kind of thing was. So I was myself, I had the Peacock books out when I was in high school looking for songs. I knew there was more than, you know, she's like the swallow and the ones that we all knew. And, and I actually was doing that research on my own before I ran into Noel and he was doing the same thing. They were they were doing this. They were looking through the Peacock books, and they had done it with Lukey's boat. No, I had I knew nothing about Lukey's boat, but they were kind of on the go when I was in high school. So, you know, there was kind of like a groundswell of of interest in all things Newfoundland culture at that time, and people independently came to it. So, by the time Noel and I met and started, we had a like kind of um, mission. Uh, that we were doing the same thing. So we kind of gravitated towards each other um, immediately. And <laughs> the rest, as they say, <laughs> is history. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 19 years, right? Did I read that correctly? I was with the band for 19 years, yeah. Wow. Mm. I mean, that's just so much longer than pretty much any <laughs> band exists. Yeah, there's a reason for that. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, it must have been a roller coaster of, of you yeah. know, highs and lows. Were, were there periods of inactivity within that yes. 19 years that you're counting? Yeah, Yeah. well, and 19 years, I mean, like, it wasn't really active band for 19 years. I stayed with Noel till the very end. At the end, it was just the two of us, and, um, you know, and he was getting sick, and, you know, so it, uh, it you can't say the band was active then, although... You know, um, downstream was released the year he died. So right. creatively um, active for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, we were trying our best to. He really, really wanted to do that album. So that's what I I helped him do that. And various you know people came in to play session work, but you couldn't really say there was a band at that time. It was mostly just the two of us. But I count that in the nineteen years. Yeah, of <laughs> yeah. course. Yeah, of course. Uh, I mean, what. What was the driving force for him at that point? You said he was, you know, he was sick, obviously. He wanted to make that record. Was it mm. still, you know, were the themes all still the same at that point? Uh, had they evolved in terms of, like, the driving force of, of making a recorded music for the band? He wanted to, there were things he wanted to say. There was music he wanted to get out. Um, you know, we, we did a lot of, you know, we started off with the traditional thing, but uh, over the years, you know, people's, um, original music demanded a voice, you know, like people wanted to write things and Noel had all kinds of stuff that he had written over the years with Lukey's Boat and various other bands that he really needed to say. Um, the Tempest was great for that um, because uh, we, we did an original score for Shakespeare's Tempest in the early 80s and uh, he got to use a lot of music that he had written uh, that never ever found a home, as it were. Mm. So um, that was great. And then, you know, there was, um, lyrically, there was a lot of things he wanted to say on uh, Downstream. So we, we helped him make it. But right. the, the, uh, the, uh, the, the album, of course, was overshadowed by the news of his demise. Yeah, mm. right. Um, the way you described getting into that band was a little bit interesting to me because I mean BAMs obviously form in all kinds of ways but you're saying how Anita was in it for a period and decided it wasn't for her and then he approached you about seeing it but the band as a band existed to some point right? It was just getting on the go I mean uh, he was he had recruited uh, Art Stoyles and Kelly and Dave and a couple other three people who came and went and uh, Derek Kelly was involved at the beginning so yeah they were just kind of getting started and finding their voice you know it 
Um, the concept certainly was there and the boys were there. And I think they had done one or two shows or something like that. But, you know, for all intents and purposes, it was the beginning of it. They had the concept and they had the people, you know, they were still getting the people together who were going to be the actual band. Right. Mm. Okay. So did it feel like creative even footing for you when you stepped into that role for the first time? Oh, yeah. Yeah, cool. absolutely. Um and I, uh, I kind of learned how to play the guitar. <laughs> really? I, I didn't really know that. I, I had a little bit of guitar, but uh, I went at it a bit, you know, learned how to play rhythm to the jigs and stuff. And uh, I had already, obviously, could play the piano. And um, so I brought that as well, and arrangement skills and things like that, yeah. Right. Mm. Where were those earliest shows? Oh my God, I don't remember. Here in here in town, though, yeah, or? in St. Yeah. John's, and then we, and then we did a lot of traveling, like back to the outports and things, like to to learn songs, and you know that was a really special time because you know you'd well, I we could we use the um, the Peacock books as a um, as a reference because you could tell by going through those which places had a strong singing tradition because you know you'd see. Oh, this is from Stockholm. This is from Stockholm. This oh, Stockholm must be a great place. So we'd go, and you know, we'd just knock on somebody's door and say, "Can you tell us where the so and so lives?" Or at that time, I mean, there were still some singers living that were in Peacock's collection. But then, if they weren't, then there were other people in the community. We'd say, "You know, we're looking for singers," and right. we'd inevitably we'd find them. <laughs> right. Right. Um, there was a story, Sandy was here for the very, the very first one of these I recorded with Sandy. And, uh, and I, I told him a story that I had heard and I had heard it originally, um, in relation to Ron saying it, but Sandy said, I think it might've been Noel Din who said this story, which had to do with a night in St. John's with a show that was happening. Again, of course I'd heard it as Ron, but that the show was being performed, songs were being sung, the audience wasn't super into it, someone was heckling, and basically said, what are you even doing up there? And Ron slash Noel said, I'm trying to save your fucking culture. <laughs> that was Phil. That was Phil, okay, here we go. This is a good folklore journey. I'm going on this story. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's good to know. Um... <laughs> I love that. I find it really interesting. And I think it's, uh, uh, you know, it, it, there's just so many groups who, uh, you know, in, in one way or another are doing something that I guess I guess we look back and sort of go, you know, maybe this was what the group was doing. And then it's it's fascinating to me always, not just in Newfoundland, but in general, to to see that against how it actually felt at the time or how it actually looked at the time. Like, how do you see the band now versus then was it sort of has that evolved in a way for you in terms of sort of going like now i kind of know what we did and i put it here in my mind or was it always a, could you draw a fairly straight line to be like i knew what we were doing then and it's what we did and i still see it the same way uh, that's a tough question because um i i don't really know i mean and and it fluctuates with my mood and and with you know what i see Sometimes I think it was all for naught because, uh, you know, like we were trying to dispel the new feet stereotype and it, it's alive and well. Mm -hmm. Like we didn't succeed in that regard, um, but perhaps we succeeded in the regard of maybe more people are aware that there is a different side than what you hear on George Street. So I don't know. 
uh, it's it's really difficult to say. <laughs> I I would I would uh, be reluctant to say definitively how I feel about that because as I say, uh, sometimes I feel pretty good about it, and other times I I go through the darkest despair, and I say thank thank God there Noel's not still around. <laughs> you can you can say thank fuck. It's a okay. podcast. It's all good. <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> or just like you know, I'm I'm so glad he didn't have to see this. So I don't know. It's it's. It's hard to say. Right. I know that things, things, you know, there, there are things that I, uh, about the process and about the uh, that I that I lament because I think we didn't, um, we had we had the luxury of learning the songs and it's not only the songs it's like the the life and the everything that goes along with it from people for whom it was a living part of their life. It was their culture. It was that they, what they did in the evenings. You know, we caught the tail end of that, you know, of, of a living Newfoundland culture. And, and you know, it, it kind of throughout my lifetime has become, I mean, I'm not saying it's gone, but it's certainly not as prevalent as it was. Mm-hmm. And um, the whole idea of, um, you know, in traditional music of, when 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 I would learn a song from a singer, it was almost as if the singer was bequeathing the song, was giving it to me, was, you know, teaching it to me, and it would be their gift to me. It was an unspoken thing, but it was something that you kind of felt, and I felt it very strongly, and I think it was in, entrenched in, in the culture of learning traditional songs. And whereas, like, I don't think that idea because there because recording is such a prevalent thing now and the oral tradition suffers because of the recording tradition and so you don't get that you know like that passing of of songs that used to be in the traditional i, I i'm sad that that's kind of you know uh, has has disappeared it seems to be um because to me that was a an integral part of the uh of the process and of the beauty of learning traditional music. Mm, mm. I mean, it's touched on so many big points that I talk about with a lot of my my friends, you know, about uh, just all the double-edged swords. There's so many double-edged yeah. swords, right? Because obviously, um, you know, from a folkloric perspective, we have more ability now to catalog and capture music so easily compared to before. I mean, it can just be... And it can be disseminated in in much easier ways than it used to be. Uh, But there's such an influx as well of styles. Like I had this conversation with a few people about how, you know, at the advent of the internet, like your favorite band now could be this obscure Australian band with 100 fans, you know. And that's actually, I think, kind of an amazing thing. But it definitely makes you kind of question the next several decades and how that will affect whatever the identity is here and the people who are making music here. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't. I, I kind of tried and started, um, you know, trying to embrace technology. And and at one point, I just said, you know, I can't do it. And I just gave up. I like, uh, I like what I, you know, the way it was. And um, and I'm sounding like an old fart now, but uh, I, I just that's the way I feel. I liked learning from people. I like the the face to face thing. I used a tape recorder with. Uh, with traditional singers once in my life and that was just um and i and i felt so bad about it that i put it away after the first three verses uh because my friend uh, like he was one of those singers i described that we found because of the peacock collection 
I met him. He lived in Grand Falls, and when I went back to visit my folks, you know, I used to go see him. And and uh, he, because he was on Fogo Island, there was no power when Peacock went up there, so he didn't get to record him. And I thought it was my duty to record him, so I went in there with a tape recorder, and he couldn't sing. He was so nervous. Oh, wow. He just like you know, and it just destroyed whatever we had built up. And I just turned it off and put it away and forget it. So right. so I never ever used a tape recorder. And and I and I'm not saying that it's a bad thing. It's it's a necessary thing and it's fantastic that, you know, some people did go and record the singers, but it just wasn't for me. Right. So, you know, various people do various things, you know, in various ways. And so I I kind of found my comfort zone and it was to learn, you know, songs directly from the people. Sure. Mm. Well, I mean, that earliest music, that's how it was, you know, mm. that was that was the original Netflix, wasn't it? Yeah. It was, you know, you're <laughs> singing a 16-verse ballad telling a story, <laughs> and people are like, that's how I learned that story. Yeah, and the stories, I mean, are just, you know, some of them are incredible. Yeah, I, I tried to, I, that's, that was the basis of my uh, folk opera. Remember I said I was going back to theater, you know, that I, I made a, a whole musical play based on a, story from a folk song right right mm. now i read that you went back um i want to talk about that and sort of maybe how technology has or hasn't had an impact on that like i'm curious how you've embraced it or not when it comes to working on that and, and also in relation to you have a graphic design degree right 2008 i believe mm, or something somewhere there, right? yeah yeah, I, <laughs> it was funny because, I mean, you, you know, like most artists, I just scramble and scrub and scrape and, you know, just you, you, I don't have a, a steady income of any sort. But I uh, I was working for Rising Tide and I, I was eligible for uh, unemployment insurance because, I you know, someone was paying my, my um, and that was with the, with the first version of the Nobleman's Wedding. And... Um, I'd, through a conversation of, of um, with a friend of my sister who worked for the government, she said, you know, you're eligible to go to school and unemployment insurance will pay for it. I said, really? And she told me about the program. And so I went and I applied as an unemployable adult. And that's how I got to go to do the graphic design course. Now, silly me, I thought, you know, because I'm a... I'm a hand person. I'm not a technical. I'm not a computer person. I thought, well, graphic design, great. Like you know, you, you're 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 drawing and you're sketching and you're, you know, uh, of course, um, that wasn't the case. It was all computer based, and uh, my learning curve was massive. Mm. I went into school and. Um, this is how like they didn't know what to do with me. They had never the instructors had never come across any student who had fewer computer skills than I did. They didn't even think to tell me that there was a difference between the Mac lab and the PC lab, that what you learned in your, the notes you took on the Mac computer were not going to work in the PC. So it was two and a half months before I figured that out. Oh I was so frustrated and nobody told me. Oh my God. And my students didn't talk to me because they were all on Facebook. Right. Like nobody spoke to each other. This right. is like a new generation that I didn't know anything about. Right. And people didn't, and of course they didn't talk to me because I was weird. I was older than most of the instructors and they were like, you know, 19, 20 years old. Right. And they were all like, you know, no, but nobody spoke to each other. They were all Facebook people. But right. anyway, so, I was, <laughs> it was almost the end of the semester before I finally gleaned on to the fact that these were two different operating systems. 
so that's I mean that that'll tell you <laughs> just what I was up against. I worked so hard in those two years, my brain hurt. Yeah, I mean, I would I have, I would come home and and my head would be hurting, and I, I had to like I even dropped out of my pool league, everything just because I had to work so hard to make that happen. Oh my God! But I did, I yeah. did it, and um, was it worth it? Did you? Were yes, you, it was worth it. I'll yeah. tell you why it was worth it because um, <laughs> and. and I, I did. I, I got my book of ballads done, um, which I always wanted to do because I was inspired by Ralph Baum Williams. Um, did a book of Newfoundland folk songs that were collected by his friend Maud Garpley's in the twenties, and uh, it was a beautiful book, and I loved it, and I was inspired by it. I wanted to do my own, yeah. and I did. And also, though, if you get used to working those programs, like the um, InDesign and uh, Illustrator, and you know those Adobe programs. Mm-hmm you're not as intimidated to try other programs. So it was only because of that that I was able to get my head around Finale, which is a music notation program, yeah. which has really helped, my made my life a lot easier. So the answer is yes, it did help. Right. Although... I had like I mean I'm much much better in the print world than I am like I can't you know um, I tried to do some of the web stuff and I did enough to get by but I I'm that's not where my interest lies. Totally. But I can operate you know some programs well enough to you know accommodate my needs. Right. But I don't keep up with it and I'm not really interested in it. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. so I you know I just barely keep enough and I've got a couple of nephews who are you know constantly helping me with things that I can't I can't do but you know I I get along okay and that's thanks to that. And I can still do things for myself like you know graphically like I know how to scan my handwork and use it in other things and you know I've made a few calendars just for my own edification, you know. Sure. I can make posters or whatever. <laughs> right. It's become a creative outlet yeah. one way or another. Yeah, like it's yeah, another, yeah, yeah. 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 It's uh, man, I mean in this day and age uh, every artist is expected to do all that stuff and mm. it's a, it's a challenge. It's it's a because it's it's still a moving target, you know, in the the record industry collapse and now potentially uh though no one calls it this the the reunification via spotify i think i mean a lot of the people who now work at these streaming sites are the label people of the of the old world you know and there's we're sort of doing another wave of you know the challenge of how does an artist earn their living when you know those worlds have replaced labels for they're collecting the money and the artist is seeing very little of it. You know, I had to give up on that. I I just couldn't, I couldn't keep up with it. And we we ran a label for years. Mm. We, we, like we had our own, you know, Amber music and I produced albums for other artists and we did a Meals album and the color of Amber with Anita and I, and, you know, all kinds of great music. And we tried, and I, (laughs) when Figuredoff disbanded and Noel died, I actually bought, back the rights to the figured off catalog oh yeah and uh i never ever got out of the hole after that um but i just it was it was an emotional decision not a business decision and you know who controlled those rights at the time it was a a label called hypnotic in in toronto okay and so i you know we we got anyway we we tried we we did do some stuff with international licensing and the various you know and the retros i did the retrospective which did quite well but I just like after the CD thing and, uh, you know, and then we got hit with um, Revenue Canada, you know, uh, came and we almost <laughs> we lost a lot. Anyway, but I just I just couldn't 
I couldn't, after that, I was just burnt out with trying to disseminate the music. I just can't do promotion anymore. Yeah. Can't do self-promotion, can't do promotion of the music, can't do any of it. I just had to give up. Right. I, I just can't do it. Right. So <laughs> no, that's it. Yeah, <laughs> no, totally. I mean, we had a brief conversation about this off mic, you know, a little bit by email. And I mean, it's something that uh, I'm really interested in hearing your thoughts on, you know, even though you're probably like, my thoughts are <laughs> I'm burnt out. Yeah. But but I mean, like, I just know that people, artists at my age are feeling that burnout. And I'm sort of like, you know, is it just accelerated now? Because, you know, I mean, I've been doing my own everything for 15 years you know i've worked with a few managers over the years and i've had people who've helped me on projects but i mean i feel that burnout at this stage of my life because it's just and the idea that like you're introducing certain mechanics that that are you know different from the time you're describing like the facebook instagram twitter like the idea of like like imagine you know multi-daily posts of stuff that's not related to what you're doing but it is because it's about it's all the things that like you know, 24 year olds in Toronto were paid a, a living wage to think about like your brand and your blah, blah, blah is now on the average independent artist. And it's pretty exhausting. It is. I, and I was on Facebook for a while and I changed it to a musician's page at the, at the, um, advice of my nephew. And I did it for, I actually, uh, uh crowdfunded my last record, um, and did all of that. I did all of it, uh, as much as I could. And, I don't think I haven't f posted anything on Facebook for about seven years now, right? Uh, because I just, I just pulled away. I couldn't. I just couldn't do it. I, right. I just got so, you know, I'm not that like I'm not what that way inclined um, personally. You know, I, I'm not a self promoter, and you know the uh, the funny thing is is that I'm, you, you mentioned burnout. I am totally burned out with that, but not creatively. Right. You know, like creatively, I'm I'm just as you know. I got so many things that I want to be at, and I just can't finance them because I can't, I can't, you know, promote myself, and I can't get out there and sell myself, and I can't, you know, I, I have an even hard time applying for a, a, a an arts grant right. because I just don't. I, I'm like you say, and I didn't actually use that word, but it's true. Burned out with it. I can't can't do it anymore. Mm. So and and plus, like you know, having to keep up with all of those uh, social platforms. I mean, Twitter and or even Spotify. I have no idea what Spotify is. You know, <laughs> uh, we have things up on iTunes. Our music is all available digitally, and right. a friend of ours helped us do that a few years ago because you know, obviously, you know burning cds is not the way to go anymore mm -hmm. so you know i you know i i've gone i went to the dump with you know thousands of cds that's incredible yeah and uh i and, feel like they'll be back again in another 10 and 15 posters. years i think i i don't know i think that um uh vinyl came back because it's a superior sonic um experience cds are not i agree so um, maybe they won't come back. I would think cassettes would come back before CDs because of all of them, uh, CDs are the worst sonic platform we have. So they probably won't. I was about to say that in a niche way, cassettes have come back. Like you can actually go to the Battery Cafe and buy some local indie acts that have released cassettes like really? today. Right. Oh, I've got um, I've got some boxes of cassettes lying around. I should bring probably... them down. Oh my God, why wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah. That's what I mean. They'll yeah. be this niche yeah. product. I mean, if you think about the classic niche thing, the like in a few years there'll be no CD players, so there will be people who will be like, 
I'm coveting this object that you can't play anymore. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, if if they sounded better, maybe, but, you know, like, I don't really think they will. But, I mean, I've got lots left. <laughs> right. I mean, the, there was lots went to the dump, but there's lots left. So. <laughs> Just in case. Yeah. Just, yeah. Uh, I get that totally. I've said that to people that, it, you know, it, obviously uh, forgetting cassette for a second, the whole, it is fascinating, like vinyl, CDs, digital, you know, and you could could remove the middle thing and the, which is very uncommon in the the world of one thing usually replaces the very next thing you know or you know what i mean the other way around uh but uh you're right it's like obviously digital is a super convenient format i mean i'll yes. say as someone who's been touring the last few years the idea that i have a catalog of music i can plug into the car i'm driving on tour and not have to fill my suitcase with dozens of cds that's a wonderful thing so mm. it's like it's it wins for portability. Vinyl wins for audio quality. Yeah. CDs are neither of those things. No, they don't not. do either one the best. No, exactly. So, yeah, mm. it's interesting that and and you know I've had I, I've been selling USB sticks at shows. Like, yeah, which has been a, that, yeah. a weird mm. in between tech mm. thing. I call it that because I'm not even sure how long that will will make sense for people. Um, but. But it's interesting because I've had a few people come up and go, well, I'm an audiophile, so I don't know if I want the digital. And I'm like, mm. the reality is, is like my last few records have been made in 2448. Uh, and, and I can stick that on a USB stick, but that format can't fit on a CD. So like a CD is a lower quality mm-hmm. format mm. than this little office supply USB stick. Like it, mm. the future is here and it's weird. <laughs> yes, I agree. <laughs> Yeah. So I yeah, I'm I'm actually but I'm I'm kind of, you know, in a way I'm glad I'm as old as I am because, you know, I don't really feel any kind of burning need to to embrace and like I mean I did all like in in my, you know, in like in the last 20 years or so, I did as much as I could to stay abreast of all the technology, but now I don't really feel like I have to do that anymore. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. How, do, how does all that fit in for you? And this is a very broad question because, you know, I, I, maybe it's changed over the years. But how is, how is um, audience, uh, I guess, interaction and, and response to the music or, I don't know, there's a million terms we could would have there, the dialogue that happens between you and fans of your music, maybe at shows, whatever. How does all that uh, interact, you know, you went from being in a band where you were out there doing it, you were doing all those things that eventually led to a burnout of just not wanting to do promotion, not wanting to do those things. You're still creative, as you say, but now you're like, you're feeling, you know, I, you don't, you're not, you're not doing the promotional side of things so much to get it out there. Maybe you're not on the front lines as much of seeing how that music is interacting. How do, how do you process all of that outside the pure creation of the stuff you're making and going, I made this, I'm pleased with the work I've done. How do you feel about any kind of outside interaction with that work now? I do very little live work now uh, because <laughs> per, uh, uh, along with the burnout is that I cannot ask people for gigs. I can't do it. I Why can't. Not? I just can't. I, I don't know. I just don't want to. It, it feels. I. I feel. I don't know. I feel cheap or something. I just don't want to ask for gigs. I don't. I don't look for gigs. Mm. So I take invitations. 
if somebody asks me to play somewhere, I will. Mm. If I can, and I, you know, most, well, sometimes I, if it's not appropriate, I say no, but you know, most times I'll say yes. I do, I, I have been doing a little bit of, um, where I have a grandchild in Port Rexton, and uh, last summer I did a concert series at the Community Hall in Trinity East. Oh, uh, nice. Just, and, and it was totally unplugged. Um, just and the, the the hall is really live, so there's no mic, just me and my guitar, and the audiences were small and very intimate, and I really enjoyed that. Mm. I meant I did, you know, manage to put up a few posters in the area, kind of like you know, very low key, and um, so I I did enjoy that. I like play. I love when people want to hear what I have to sing, but I find that. Uh, um, that kind of listening power has dwindled more over the years that, you know, it, it, it's more fast, fast, instant gratification kind of thing. What's next? You know, the, the way pe people's listening power is not the same as it used to be. Like, mm. you know, when we first started, we used to sing 20 verse ballads in the Strand Lounge and people were following the story, you know. But mm. nowadays, I mean, even acoustically, if you sing a ballad, you know, some people are great and they really get it. And mostly they're my age, you know, like or older. Um, but younger audiences, they just don't seem to want to hear it. Or maybe they do. And I just haven't found them. I just don't know. Mm. But I don't have I don't have what it takes to go out looking for them. And I, you know, I'll just not play rather than try to create that, at, you know, that and market for myself because I mean I'd love to be you know touring playing small theaters uh, that would be my dream but I can't I can't facilitate that for myself because I don't have what it takes to you know to find a manager or to find a booking agent all those kinds of things just can't do it is it a fear of rejection at this point is it anxiety is it depression like what is it that that causes you to feel like I just can't do it period I don't know Okay. I honestly don't know. I, I probably, I probably should try and figure it out, <laughs> but uh, I don't know. I just can't do it. Uh, um, I don't know. Yeah. No, I just don't know what it is. Yeah. I mean, the unknown is the scariest thing of all, right? It's like it's I hard suppose, to penetrate. But I, but, I, but again, like you know, I'm not. I, I don't lose any sleep over it. I mean, I, I did. I did go through a few years of angst about it because I'm going. Oh my God, what am I going to do? And I still do that, but I I did last year. I um, uh, I taught at a at a music school, and uh, I really really enjoyed that. I mm. loved it. I loved. I was teaching you know beginner piano to little five year olds, and falling in love with them. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and I had to stop that because I had some health issues, so I couldn't go back. But you know I might do that again. I don't know. Right. But. Um, I, you know, as far as the self-promotion things, I think I'm done. Yeah, I've done a bit, bit of that work over the years, like either private teaching or, you know, I've done workshops. Uh, I did one last week at the College of North Atlantic about music production. And right. I, I always find them, uh, I mean, they are inherently a, a, a more pleasant, I don't know the right word, just a inherently more positive experience than the idea of touring, in my experience. Obviously, you could have like, a little kid who doesn't want to be there in a lesson. There's lots of daily drudgery that can come with any job, but yeah. I just find that uh, in general, I mean, people are there to, you're often talking to people who uh, haven't internalized a ton of the things that are the music business with the capital B, you know? They're like <laughs> people who are just there to, they're, they're excited about creating stuff and they're excited about learning new things. Yeah. And I mean, that's a wonderful 
yeah, to do. Yeah, that's know? right. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it, and I and I might, you know, might get back to it again. Um, and I'd be more inclined, as you say, to do that than to put myself out there for, <laughs> for gigs. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's such a noisy world now, you know. Like I, before you uh, came here today, I was I watched this YouTube video uh, with Bill Murray, and mm-hmm. it was like this little five minute thing, and uh, and he was asked like, um, what is it he wishes he did now that he hasn't done, you know? And he said, uh, I wish I could just be more here, more of the time. And he went on to talk about that. He went on to talk about like the idea of presence and just being like, I just really wish I was living in the moment. And it's really funny to hear a guy, I mean, Bill Murray is so uh, famously known to do like in insane things. Like if if ever there was sort of a character of like living your life out loud, like Bill Mm -hmm. Murray has stories like someone will post on the internet that they were just at a McDonald's and they turned around and Bill Murray was there and he took fries off their plate, put them in his mouth <laughs> and then said, no one will believe you if you tell them and then walked out because he's Bill Murray, you know, like yeah. he's the guy and that would really happen. Yeah. And there's all these like famous anecdotes of Bill Murray showing up and just being part of something and then whatever and uh, going to someone's birthday party because they invited him and he went, why not? Why wouldn't I do that? Like, so a person who clearly just lives on the, on a whim and so to hear someone like him describe just wanting to be there more and kind of talking about what that means to him, it was like, it's really interesting. And I had this strange thought. I remember watching this and being quite moved by his answer and taking in the wisdom of that and then thinking, God, I hope I remember this like in two days because mm-hmm. I feel like I'm going to be bombarded with so much other information mm-hmm. that potentially the quality of this little bit might be forgotten to me. And I feel like as artists, that's like one of the biggest struggles of 2019 is like, how do we, you put out something and you want to try to communicate and connect, but it maybe now more than ever, it has the chance to just be lost in a wave of whatever else is going on, you know? Yeah, I think that's true. Um, And on a personal level of living in the moment, there's nothing like losing people you love early in their life to make you uh, live in the present. Mm. Um, I mean, that's one of, I mean, Noel, going so young and so and we were so close and it was so profound um and at that and both of my parents uh died young as well so in the space of three years i lost both my mother father and Noel and emil emil mm. benoit so in a, in a very short period of time and that's what that does for you it makes you live in the moment i've never had a problem with that i've always been able to live in the moment mm. uh, and, and i think that you know we have to if when we lose people we love that's what they give us they give us like the the impetus to uh you know not to take things for granted you know like you, you a loss will make you appreciate what you have more so that's that's what we had that's what we owe i think we owe the people who who die young to to live our lives more fully um because of that lesson Mm. so you know that i i I really appreciate that for sure Mm. in terms of like you know living out loud like that it's only now i mean for for it's really tough to live in the public eye in newfoundland because it's so small that everybody knows who you are and you really want to be nice to people and your fans and everything but you know like there was I got kind of paranoid you know because Mm. people would approach me in the supermarket lineup and and meaning the the best of you know like 
being very, you know, complimentary and wanting to talk to you and stuff. But if you're not up for it, then it's really tough, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, you have to, like, I got to the point where I wouldn't even go out unless I was prepared to be public. Right. You know? Now, it's not bad now. I'm Now I can kind of relax a bit more because I can go places and, you know, it doesn't happen. But for a while there... It was brutal. Mm. So, you know, that there's that too. Like, I think there was that kind of aspect of things that, you know, made me sort of go back into a shell and, and you know, try, like, try really hard to have a life for myself that didn't involve having to explain myself to the general public whenever I went out on the street. Yeah. So, yeah. It's so hard. I mean, you, you, you get the golden rule of it. Like, if you met one of your idols, to them, that's like... A forgettable one second thing if we're talking about someone yeah. quite famous but to you you will always go i remember that time i met that person yeah and if they're a jerk to you I you know. will for the rest of your I life know. be like and that's a lot of pressure to carry that from the other side to just uh you could be having a bad day and be like i can't believe i just like uh i'm trying to do groceries here and this is going on and then someone comes up to you and you're just short with them and then for the rest of their lives they're like you know I mean, I don't, I don't know. I know that's that's putting a lot of weight on it, but you know. oh no, it's true. I have, I've, I've done things I'm totally ashamed of, because I just was ill-equipped to handle it. I couldn't do it, you know. Mm. And there's, I'm not proud of some. I mean, I tried my best, but sometimes you just can't do it, you know. Mm. So. Yeah. But that's 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 much better now. <laughs> that's much better now. And you know, I I would do something like the French fry thing for fun. I mean, just because now I'm you know I'm I'm not as like you know paranoid and fucked up as I used to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and that's one good thing about getting older too. And that's the end of part one of my conversation with Pamela Morgan. You can like and subscribe to my podcast on Apple Music, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean. Do that so you get the little notification on your phone every Thursday when the next episode goes live. See you next time.